Hey, it's Aaron, here to tell you about our friends at DraftKings. This weekend's UFC 262 is sure to be a can't-miss event. Every punch, kick, and knockout means so much more with a DraftKings lineup on the line. DraftKings, the official daily fantasy partner of UFC, is giving you a shot at huge cash prizes. For this weekend's fight, DraftKings is offering all customers a shot at millions of dollars in total prizes. If you haven't tried it yet, Fantasy MMA is easy to play. Just pick six fighters, stand under the salary cap, and pile up points for advances, takedowns, and more. There's no better way to put your MMA knowledge to the test than to compete for a shot at millions of dollars in total prizes. Plus, don't forget about basketball, it's our sport we cover on this podcast, and hockey, where DraftKings has even more money up for grabs throughout the week. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable, so you can deposit and withdraw your funds at your convenience. Download the DraftKings app now and use promo code TBPN for your shot at millions of dollars in total prizes throughout the week. That's promo code TBPN to get a shot at millions of dollars in total prizes only at DraftKings. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. How much? I think they said millions of dollars. I'm Harrison Fagan. I'm the editor-in-chief of Silver Screen and Roll, and you're listening to On the NBA Beat. You're listening to the On the NBA Beat podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Brooklyn has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant. It's a shot! With no regard for human life. Jordan. Oh, a spectacular by Michael Jordan. And now, your hosts, Lauren Lee Chen and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. Hey, listeners, welcome to another episode of On the NBA Beat, where we are excited to talk about one of this season's biggest surprises, the New York Knicks. Coming into this season, the Knicks hadn't been to the playoffs in eight straight years and were ranked 27th, 29th, and 30th in the final preseason power rankings by NBA.com, ESPN.com, and The Ringer, respectively. However, after career years by several of their players, especially Julius Randle, who was named to his first All-Star team, the Knicks find themselves entering the final week of the regular season in the driver's seat to secure home court advantage in the first round of the playoffs. For this episode, we've brought back one of our favorite people to talk Knicks with, Seth Rosenthal, video producer for Secret Base, and he'll help us connect the dots on how the team has turned their fortunes around this season. Hey Seth, welcome back to the show. It's been way too long since we had you here last, but it's great to have you back and I'm excited to talk next with you today. It's been years. So much has happened. Are we going to recap the last like five or six years? There's been a whole presidential administration in between. We could <laughs> yeah, forget maybe, about that Maybe one. we should just recap that in this episode. <laughs> yeah, I think that would go a little bit beyond the scope of our podcast, but maybe another time we can look into that. Today, to start out, first thing I want to talk about is Julius Randle and the effect he's had on the Knicks this year. Previously to this season, he was starting to gain a reputation as a guy who would put up kind of empty stats on losing teams, but 
this year he's seen a lot of growth that we've suspected capable from him for a lot of years. He's established himself as the leader of the Knicks. He's leading the league in minutes per game. He's shooting much better from three this year, increases assist rate. What have you seen from him this season specifically that has led to this amount of growth and how has he put it all together this year? Yeah, this has been, I think, the most significant, most impressive turnaround I've ever seen from a player on the Knicks, you know, during their Knicks career. Julius Randle in his first season was, you know, the highest usage player on a really, really bad team. And he looked overmatched. He he took a ton of shots. He didn't really know what his role ought to be. You know, coaching changes from David Fisdale on down to Mike Miller didn't help make that clear to him. And so, yeah, as you described, I think he deserved a reputation as a miscast point forward who missed a lot of shots, just kind of bowled into traffic and, you know, spun into double and triple teams and heaved the ball at the rim. And insofar as he was a shooter, he was a terrible one. The story goes that he spent the offseason, the extended, you know, no bubble pandemic offseason, just honing, just, just working on that shot and working on his body. And you hear stuff like that all the time from players, especially around his age. But there is measurable payoff. 2021 Randall has been a measurably improved player. You look at the shots he's taking from three-point range, and they are shots that wouldn't have gone in last season, and now they are. You know, Rarely do you see such an objective improvement in a player's performance. And I'm not smart enough to tell you know what he's doing differently with his with his shot, but he is a good shooter now. He is a genuinely great shooter and one of the best on the Knicks. And I mean, just you know, I'm not covering the Knicks in any semi-professional capacity anymore. But as a fan of the team, who you know has been stuck in his apartment for the last year, what a thing it's been to be able to depend on a player and a team like the Knicks to sort of cheer me up at the end of the night. I wasn't counting on that. And it's just the way Randall has turned his performance and his career around during this incredibly difficult year has been really inspiring. And it's meant a lot to me. And it's it's hard to fully describe. But yeah, this is a guy that I think, as you hinted, I, I was searching around ESPN trade machine for ways to dump him for like Corey Joseph, like four months ago, five months ago today. And now I'm ready to extend the dude. I've never seen anything like it as a Knicks fan, and the timing could not have been better. Yeah, and speaking of his possible extension for Randall, he has an interesting contract situation next year. It'll be the last year on his current contract, and it's only partially guaranteed. Recently, he's publicly expressed his desire to stay with the franchise long term, but he does have a sort of interesting decision on the horizon where if he doesn't agree to extension, he'll hit the open market as an unrestricted free agent mm-hmm. where he could test the waters. Can you sort of walk us through that calculus for the Knicks and Randall himself? Sure. I mean, I, I don't have enough of a knowledge of the Knicks cap situation or Randall's options there to tell you what's smartest for Julius Randall, but I, I hope that the Knicks can simply extend him and just get it over with. From a fan perspective, like I fully get that maybe this season is an outlier. Maybe it has something to do with the lack of fans. You know, he's not going to be a 41% shooter forever. He's not whatever the case may be. 
this is what we've been waiting for. This is why you take a gamble on a player. This is why you sign him to an initial sub-max contract. He's 26 years old right now. Pay the dude. And and part of it is that he has such a, a wonderful synergy with Tom Thibodeau. It's such a clearly successful coach-player pairing that has set the culture for the rest of the team. And I think as a message in validation of that and as a message to the rest of the league, players and their agents, the Knicks should commit to Randall as soon as possible. And if for him and his agent, you know, the calculus like you're, you were getting at is more, well, we could get paid more if we waited out a year, so be it. And the Knicks should, they'll have another year to judge what kind of player he is long term. But I think the Knicks should be dead set on committing to him for as long as possible or, you know, for, for whatever money it takes. I don't know if it's for as long as possible, but give him the contract he wants is my point there because that's a terrific player to build around the kind of guy he's been this last season. As you mentioned, the fit between Randall and Thibodeau is obvious this season. Actually one synchronicity that I noticed when I was researching the previous time we talked to you five years ago, right before that, episode we recorded the Knicks had just fired Derek Fisher you had interim coach Kurt Rambis and we had asked you who you thought would be good candidates for the Knicks to hire as their next head coach in the coming offseason and you said that if anyone other than Phil Jackson was the GM you'd think it was a shoe in for Tom Thibodeau to be a great hire for the Knicks obviously that didn't happen that offseason but now here we are with Tom Thibodeau what do you think about his style is what the team needed to turn their fortunes around? And also, how do you assess his coach of the year buzz for this season? Yeah, I mean, coach of the year is what it is. I don't particularly care about the award, but he's clearly had a very good coaching season. I have no idea how it stacks up compared to, you know, Monty Williams or whoever else is in the running for that award. But he took a roster that didn't changed that much it changed but it didn't change that much from the terrible performance of last season and now they are a winning playoff team and so that that's got to be worth something but i think his success in part can be explained partially by just normal coaching things he draws up good sets he's designed a good defense that fits the personnel and so forth but like i said there is that sort of cultural fit i think the characteristics that may have made Thibodeau a bad fit in some other places. Some things that one might consider flaws happen to vibe pretty nicely with the personalities of his best players, or, or I guess the people who have become his best players, who, not, you know, who weren't necessarily particularly good players coming into this season. So like I said, Randall seems pretty down for the thing where he leads the league in minutes and is just called upon to do everything sometimes. R.J. Barrett, who himself has experienced an unbelievable turnaround from being really one of the worst players in the NBA last season, and which is fine when you're 19 years old, to, like Randall, a genuinely good shooter, not just an improved one, but like someone you want to have the ball, someone who, who really ranks up there and really has his shots. Those are guys who fit with Thibodeau. Thibodeau's you know, rap has been he overplays guys, He's an incredible hard ass who will scream at you um, and will overwork you and, you know, just has this sort of military mindset. Turns out that someone of Julius Randle's experience and caliber, and in R.J. Barrett's case, someone who came up with Coach K, 
and you know have these sort of gym rat reputations they fit perfectly they they like that they're they're down with Thibodeau. you know there have been recent incidents um not even incidents where Thibodeau could be seen on the msg network broadcast screaming on the sideline at rj barrett and or julius randall and in a normal season or with a different roster i as a fan would look at that and say well we're gonna be hearing about that after after the game that sounds like a problem and you know on the timberwolves maybe that would have been a problem but for better or worse, R.J. Barrett, after that incident, was like, yeah, I, he screamed at me. I deserve to get screamed at. That's, that's cool. That's accountability. And you move on. There's a sort of yin and yang there where Thibodeau has his foibles, or I guess quirks would be the generous thing to call them. But he has players who I think have benefited from midseason acquisitions who are used to Thibodeau in, in Derrick Rose and Taj Gibson. He's got players who, who are kind of down for the full Tom Thibodeau experience, warts and all. And as a fan, my one big worry is that no matter how much guys like Randall and Barrett are okay with being played 97 minutes a night, you know, their knees might not be into it. At least up until the moment I'm talking to you, knock on wood, nothing terrible has come of that. But kind of asking for it there, but at the very least, uh, mentally and emotionally, if not uh, in their ligaments, the players seem to be down with the famous Tom Thibodeau short rotation. That's funny. Something to that effect was in the show notes. Lauren was <laughs> speculating that that might be a problem for future Seth. Not right now. Right. I should say this is Aaron, by the way. And it's an absolute pleasure to have you back on the show, Seth, after so long. And also my co-host Lauren to be reunited with him on his birthday. That's all I'll say about that. That's when we're recording. But anyway... <laughs> One thing I wanted to ask about Tom Thibodeau as a follow-up, what have you seen in his interactions with or how he seems to gel with Derrick Rose and Taj Gibson? Now this is the third team that the three have, have been all together on in the NBA. You know, it's it's interesting because the starting point is that both Derrick Rose and Taj Gibson have been next prior to Tom Thibodeau. Thibodeau, which is an interesting wrinkle. They came back, but they they both had next careers with other coaches. And then the second part is that both are playing really well. The coach doesn't hit the shots for you. He doesn't help you execute. He just tells you what to do. And thankfully, some combination of Thibodeau putting Rose in particular in a good position and Rose just like some of these other guys, just hitting the shots has made it so we don't really have to think that hard about what Thibodeau's love of Derrick Rose means. That's not something I saw coming. I saw Derrick Rose in his first stint with the Knicks a couple years ago. Derrick Rose was real bad the first time he was on the Knicks. I did not like watching him, and when they traded for him this season, I was very upset. Not afraid to admit that, but Derrick Rose is comfortable coming off the bench. He's necessary to a team that starts Alfred Payton at point guard, and he's hitting the shots. You know, in, in stretches where there just isn't much going, a lot of those second unit stretches, he is has been sharp from downtown. He's got that sort of mid-range self-creation where like the set hasn't given him much, but he can make something out of it. He and Gibson have a really good rapport. And Obi Toppin, who has been a bit miscast as a Nick in his first season and has kind of gotten the short end of Julius Randle having this breakout season, um, he has benefited immensely from Rose 
coaching him up a bit and just being the only guy on the team capable of like throwing a decent entry pass, which is really what you need when your first rate, your lottery picked rookie is like one of the highest jumping people on the planet. But yeah, point being, Rose is playing well. I think he's a he's a bit of a coach on the floor for Thibodeau. And he, I think, has been such a nice bridge between Thibodeau and some of the younger guys on the team whose minutes have fluctuated, who've been in and out of the rotation, who in Emmanuel Quickly's case have dealt with some injuries here and there. It's just been it's been seamless. And, you know, I worried that Thibodeau's obvious affinity for Rose would favor him in a way that was detrimental detrimental but it 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 just it's been the opposite that's one of many things that has been such a pleasant surprise this season and you know Taj Gibson is obviously not as big of a deal but he became a pretty big deal when Mitchell Robinson went down with two really significant injuries and you know you know what you're getting with him I quite liked him in his first stint unlike Rose and he's been awesome Something key to Thibodeau's rotation and the Knicks' excellent defense in particular this season is that really no matter what, they have the same type of performance at the five spot. They've always got someone who can you know, fulfill that drop coverage role in Thibodeau's defense. Nerlens Noel has been incredible, just so much fun to watch this season. And Gibson has stepped up in such a way that even after Mitch Robinson went down, who's really a fantastic, important player to this team, who was quietly starting to break out, the Knicks just have such consistency in in that part of their depth chart that they've barely missed a beat without such an important player. And going back to RJ Barrett, whom you touched on a little earlier, I assume you would consider him the Knicks' second best or second most important player. Is that right? I Another thing I need to admit is that I certainly would not have six months ago. That's another mm-hmm. guy I was real, real down on. But yeah, if he's going to be an even middle-of-the-road shooter, which right now he's not. He's a good shooter right now. And if he is starting to realize his role as, at least in most units, not like a point-forward type, not a just drive, drive, drive guy, but someone who's going to make smart cuts away from the ball and you know wait for a bit of a seam, to attack rather than just try and beat his guy off the dribble if he's going to play defense and again if he's going to hit the open three then yeah that's a really important player you know at his age on his contract he's just risen to the occasion and and improved his skill set you know there's still plenty of room to grow but like yeah he's extremely important and like i said coming into this season i saw him as someone who maybe should be traded because other teams still believed in him and i really didn't but i was pleasantly mistaken about that one about as wrong as I've ever been about a Knicks player so yeah he's he's extremely important and a lot of this remarkable season this turnaround can be attributed to him improving immensely definitely it's rare to see the two best or two potentially best players on a team just become really good shooters after being below average shooters the year before Barrett revamped his shot in the offseason, worked on removing that hitch that he had with his trainer, Drew Hanlon. He was at 32% from beyond the arc his rookie season. He's just over 40% now this year as of Monday after the win against the Clippers. He's also extremely streaky, which I feel like could be frustrating for a Knicks fan like yourself. 
he hit all of his threes in the opening game of the season. And then he missed his next 21 attempts, yeah, which I think is hilarious, over the next four games. Hit 47% in February, down to 34% in March. And then over April and the start of May, he's now hitting 49% from long range. Is that a little bit maddening? Or like you said, are you more encouraged that he's a pretty solid three-point shooter for the most part, and now he's logging really big minutes too in critical games? Yeah, I mean, the streakiness is fascinating, but you you just sort of laid it out. We're like shooting 34% for a month. I'll take that. I that's yeah. Great. When you're 32 percent all missed, seasons, a huge. He number. missed twenty. You said it twenty one in a row. That was <laughs> j- just the beginning of the season. End of December, January was wild. I've never seen anything like that. Where you know I'm a very like I'm sort of obsessive about shooting percentages, and so that opening game against the Pacers, he yeah he hit whatever it was like eight or seven or he just hit a ton of threes and in my head I'm like all right cool. Now he has this buffer where he can shoot pretty badly and his percentage is still going to look pretty nice. And then he went out for the next you know, 10 games and went, no, watch. <laughs> I, I can ruin that percentage. And yeah, there was, there was a stretch there where it was they, were, they had played two games against the Pacers and he had shot almost perfectly in those two games and had not hit a single jumper in the rest of them. And it was wild. And so, yeah, a march where he, he shoots merely you know, one point per shot, we'll take that. That's fine. If he's somewhere in between the guy who hits 40-something percent of his threes and the guy who hits 34%, we'll take that. That's fine. And and I think you know the big thing to look at, since he's basically still a prospect at this point, I have learned enough that um, you really want to look at the free throw percentage. And that has, has really gone up and stayed up. And that's a sign that, like you said, Drew Hanlon, whatever it was that he changed, he is both, I think, choosing better shots learning more about, you know, what he needs to create the shooting structure and, and the sort of balance and pre-shot routine he needs. He's, he's more consistent and even a little bit of a regression for him, just as is the case with Julius Randle, even a bit of a regression, that's still a way better shooter than I ever thought he would be. Yeah, and I'm glad you noted the free throw percentage too. It's inexcusable for a guy like him to be in the low 60s, which is what was the case as a rookie. But Now would be a good time to talk about the point guard situation. Always a popular topic of discussion for the New York Knicks. It's actually been pretty solid so far this season. Alfred Payton is the starter. Derrick Rose is doing a a really excellent job off the bench, including in Sunday's win over the Clippers, 25-8-6. and And Emmanuel Quickly, who's been able to play alongside other point guards, including Rose, but also he can run the show sometimes too, dealing with a little bit of an ankle sprain right now. What's the dynamic between those three guards? What are you seeing from them? Yeah, I think Alfred Payton is sort of the goat on this team. I think he's justifiably, for the most part, the player that Knicks fans like the least. And the entire one spot in the depth chart is coping with the fact that I think everyone understands that going forward with whatever draft pick the Knicks end up with, with the cap space they're going to have in the trade market, there's a pretty clear path forward for this team to go from surprisingly okay to good to great, and it's it's building the backcourt. The Knicks really need a good point guard, a star point guard, and I think there's a good chance they're going to go get one. So it feels sort of temporary. So with that as a backdrop, 
Yeah, Peyton, you know, it's frustrating that Peyton's still the starter. Obviously, at this point, Rose plays way more minutes than he does. So, you know, what does it really mean for him to be a starter? And we've, we've seen situations like this with the Mike Woodson Knicks. And I, I understand some of Tom Thibodeau's prior teams would start a guy just to set the tone for the first few minutes as a table setter and then immediately switch to the real primary guy in that spot. Peyton is, you know, he has these stretches where he gets to the rim in, in a different setting than anyone else. And there are whole five-minute stretches where the only guy who can get anything going against certain defenses is Peyton sort of changing pace and blowing by people and hitting these tough layups. And there are times when when that approach is going to set things up for everyone else. But he is not a particularly productive passer. Or he's a productive passer, but he's not a particularly creative passer. And I think he, in a very good defense has stretches where he's really the weak link. And it's sort of emphasized by his body language. He has this habit that I can remember Zach Lowe writing about when he was in Orlando, where he'll, he'll just kind of check out on a defensive possession sometimes, slump his shoulders and just sort of wander around, you know, which occasionally <laughs> generates a really cool steal because he's in a weird sort of no man's land, but often leads to sort of systemic breakdown. One of the best things about Thibodeau is he has gotten – a roster not full to the brim with guys who are going to play super intense individual defense on their own. He's gotten them to operate on a string and to really push it on that end. And, you know, Julius Randle is a great example of someone who was not known as a defender and is not going to go lock everyone up by himself, but he understands his role. It's not particularly complicated and he's handling it well. Peyton, you know, even less so than, than a rookie like Emmanuel Quickly, I think is not always stepping up to the challenge they're not always helping the whole team stay on a string and and quickly doesn't have right now Peyton's handle or his ability to get to the rim you know there used to be stories about Jarrett Jack I think dribbling the ball like through the airport like onto the team plane and I want I want Emmanuel quickly to have that summer where he is just dribbling a ball every spare second of his life because he needs to tighten up his handle to become a more reliable ball handler but he is just such an accurate shooter in a variety of settings. And, you know, the, the free throw test really checks out there. He's basically a perfect free throw shooter. Um, has come up clutch in so many moments. Has been seemingly comfortable with huge minutes sometimes and then kind of light minutes the next. And like several other people, has benefited immensely from playing alongside Rose. I'm, I'm not someone who even in the pre-Rose era would have just handed the keys to Emmanuel quickly, but I... I do see a really fun player, a potential, you know, six man going forward and quickly, not necessarily someone who is threatening to take that point guard spot long term. But yeah, it's, you know, that is that is the weak spot in the next rotation. But it's, it's been fine. It's been intriguing. They've tried a couple mm-hmm. different looks. And I think Thibodeau's doing his best right now with what he's got. It's, it's a bit of a political decision. And I think, I think they're ready for the playoffs at that spot, even though if it's going to be the spot that eventually prevents them from beating one of the higher seeded teams yeah from my perspective much of the Knicks fan base really is enamored with quickly they love his Lillard Curry like range where he just fires from deep and supposedly that's really good for gravity too which makes sense just kind of just spreading the opposing defense out because you have to honor that threat from him if Mm -hmm. he keeps hitting at such a good rate yeah, absolutely. He's an extremely exciting player. And unless you really knew your Kentucky Wildcats, he's a complete surprise. You know, someone who wasn't projected to go at the point he was picked, 
I certainly went, you know, one, one other thing I was wrong about is I did not want him with that pick. The Knicks did some sort of trading gymnastics to end up drafting late in the first round. And that was a surprising, unexpected pick that didn't make a ton of sense. But then you see the kid, like you said, pulling up from Damian Lillard range, whether it's off the bounce or off the catch. Um, he's got this floater, which I'm not sure is really a go-to move long-term, but is, is pretty fun when it's going in. Yeah, just someone taking, you know, someone of his age taking that late in the draft. He's got one or two already workable NBA skills, and that's awesome. And man, if he can improve the way some other Knicks have, especially some young guys, that's that's a real ball player the Knicks got with a late first rounder. And in the meantime, he's likable, he's entertaining, and he's a genuinely important part of the Knicks rotation. And that's pretty cool because it's a good team. And his name is quickly. And, and he's a quickly. guard, so we have you know, to mention funny. that. Just for it's funny. My my wife, for someone who's lived with a diehard Knicks fan, someone who had a Knicks blog for, she's lived with me for like 10 years now, she has a remarkable ability to retain zero Knicks information. Like, she's in the room while I'm watching the games, but she has no idea what's going on, could name you none of the players on the team. As She'll never forget his name, will she? But she knows Emmanuel quickly because she heard that one time and was like, what is that name? That's amazing. It's not even a nickname. It's just, it's his family name. Yeah, so it's pretty cool. You got to respect that. This is a, a short answer question. You could even say yes or no to this one if you want in the interest of time. But um, Kevin Knox and Frank Tilakina, back-to-back lottery picks, 2017 and 2018, from, for the most part, previous front office administrations, they're no longer really getting minutes and they're being phased out, especially Tilakina. To what extent do you think that's the right move and or refreshing to admit past mistakes and just uh, go with what's working best right now? Yeah, neither has really earned a greater opportunity, which particularly in Tilakina's case um, makes me feel sad. Um, sad, but the right decision at this point for the yeah. team? Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to see Frank get more of a chance, but when he does get a foot in the door, he doesn't necessarily kick the door open, at least this past season. Um, those are both, I think, NBA players, and if they are remain deep in the Knicks rotation, such is life. But Hopefully they can catch on somewhere else, because they're so young, too. Yeah, they're both really young, and uh, I wouldn't mind, you know, like I said, I, I do worry about the number of minutes some of these guys are playing elsewhere in the rotation, and you know, uh, maybe someone like Frank, someone like Kevin Knox could help allay some of that burden. But uh, so far, not the case, and the season's almost over. One more quick question for you. I'd love to learn more about Reggie Bullock. He's shooting his best percentage from three in years, and more than 70% of his field goal attempts are from three. Last season, that percentage was less than 50. How's the offense utilizing him differently to optimize that impact? Yeah, he and Randall have really gotten comfortable around one another. And I think Bullock's had some injuries since he's been in Nick, which has maybe thrown off his rhythm, which is so important for a guy with his, you know, shooting profile, his sort of recipe for success. But I'm not sure what it is, but he just was the kind of, you know, shoot first, guy, uh, you know, outside shot first guy who would hit these rough patches where he wasn't, his form would sort of fall apart. And it seems almost like the Knicks are giving him a diet more of, you know, floating on the weak side and moving slowly and gradually into shooting position instead of doing those 
super fast, hard JJ Reddick cuts where he plants his feet and, you know, tries to build his balance with a lot of deceleration. It's more that Randall will be doing his thing. Rose will be doing his thing. And Bullock will sort of gradually float from just inside the arc to just out outside of it. Like he almost with a more awkward, um, settling into, sh- into his shooting position is able to generate the balance and the form necessary to hit the three a bit better. Um, he's not shooting as much off the dribble. It's just, he's in better spots now. And while he is certainly taking a vast majority of his shots from behind the arc, he's not Steve Novak, his ability to pump fake and hit a mid range jumper or make the extra pass makes him um, someone that you can't just bear hug and then leave it at that. He's he's got a little bit of versatility to his game, and yeah, he's crucial. You know, when Julius Randle is your best player, when Derrick Rose is your you know primary usage player in the second unit, Knicks need shooters, desperately need shooters, and um, Bullock is that. And I think something that Knicks fans talk a lot about, but I don't see, you know, national media celebrating quite as much as that Bullock's defended his position really well, too. If the opposing team's best player is a wing, it's sort of a toss up whether that's going to be Barrett's assignment or Bullock's assignment. And Bullock, you know, when tasked with guarding someone, you know, sometimes someone much bigger than him, sometimes someone much quicker than he is, really gives it his all. And, you know, even if he's overmatched, does a pretty good job. He's one of those guys, like I said, who was bought into the Thibodeau culture. Um, and yeah, is having such a terrific season in a way that I think you couldn't just, you couldn't just plug and play any other, you know, shooter type of guy and have exactly the same success. I want to quickly talk about the stretch in April where the Knicks rattled off nine straight wins, three of those in overtime. And that really solidified their position in the Eastern Conference playoff picture. Obviously, some of that was easier scheduling. They caught some breaks with injuries uh, to their opponents. But was there anything special happening with the team during that stretch that made them feel a little bit more unbeatable? And also, how did that compare to maybe similar situations in previous years where uh, you wouldn't have that kind of you know win streak possible? Right. I, I think the caveats you noted are worth mentioning, uh, that they got lucky with some opposing injuries, that there were some bad teams in there, um, some short rest teams. And I will add that like the Thibodeau Knicks, in a way, kind of cheat in that it's basically accepted that in the regular season, your stars will play like 36 minutes and that you got to find 12 minutes from a just a worse group of players and the Knicks basically do not play by that arithmetic their their stars are playing 40 minutes and so there are stretches of each game where the Knicks are playing at an it's you know it's like a power play they still got Julius Randle and RJ Barrett out there while they're playing against second stringers and I will reiterate that I worry about that long term but in the short term that's gonna you know that gives you a bit of a plus minus advantage I don't want to talk too long about that because also some really important, awesome, undeniable things happen. One is that, you know, guys who are having breakout seasons, guys who are real surprises, are young, tend to flag after the All-Star break, especially if they just made their first All-Star teams. You know, I've seen seasons where Kristaps Porzingis was the best Knicks player, and he kind of hit a wall after, or or just hurt himself, but kind of hit a wall after the All-Star break. 
Julius Randle had, I think his first game out of the All-Star break was a total dud against the Bucks. And me being defeatist, being a Knicks fan who's sort of downtrodden at this point, I was like, all right, here it comes. Here comes the rest of the season where he comes back to earth. You know, I enjoyed it while it lasted. But no, Julius Randle had some unbelievably efficient, unbelievably productive games during that stretch. I'm not going to do the math in my head, but he was deep into the minutes at that point and was still putting up really remarkable shooting lines. And if he had a bad game, he would come back and have a good one. I think Barrett turning the shooting corner had a lot to do with that. And I think, like I said, Nerland's Noel stepping up to be really just as effective an interior defender. One of the most impressive shot blockers I have ever seen watching basketball. But yeah, just as useful a cog as Mitchell Robinson, at least as that sort of goalkeeping five meant that the Knicks didn't really miss a beat. Um, And so, yeah, there was some luck involved. There was the minutes advantage. There was some bad teams in there. But there is, you know, some of those immeasurable things like grit and whatever other cliches you want to use, the the Knicks have that. They got the culture. They, They are really trying to win every regular season game in a way that other teams at other positions in their sort of arc might not be and it's paying off for them in a way it didn't always early in the season they lost some close games early on but they're in particular they're able to generate stops late in games we saw it against the clippers recently on this sort of brutal west coast road trip that followed the big win streak and it's just it's been cool it's different it's immensely satisfying to watch and you can point to several different things for for why that worked out and the season is winding down now. It looks like the Knicks are likely headed for a first-round matchup with either the Hawks or the Heat, who are uh, tied in the standings as of Monday, May 10th, uh, with the Hawks holding the tiebreaker there. What are your thoughts on a potential first-round series with either of those teams, and uh, how much do you think home court advantage might matter there? It's weird to be incorporating this as a variable but home court advantage definitely matters especially as i believe the state of new york is going to dial up its capacity allowance for a place like madison square garden right around the time the playoffs start which i'm sure is intentional and james dolan is you know letting andrew cuomo use his private jet anyway it's weird that that matters but um yeah msg is an important home court advantage and unless the players on the Knicks are going to suddenly put their tail between their legs and shoot poorly with the garden at 25 or half half percentage capacity or whatever it is. Um, they need that. The, the matchups are interesting. The, the heat, Eric Spolstra has always ruined the Knicks. Linsanity Spolstra was the guy who put a, just threw a wrench in that. He just really knows how to <laughs> knows how to design a defense that can wreck the Knicks, and the Heat have destroyed the Knicks this season. Um, part of that is Miami's defense, which is just always frustrating to watch against the Knicks. Um, and part of that is that I think one of the Knicks' defensive weaknesses, especially without Robinson, is that they have trouble against a really creative big man, especially one who can hit an outside shot. Nikola Jokic, when the Knicks played the Nuggets, demonstrated that better than anyone by you know single-handedly blowing the Knicks out by himself in a quarter of that game. But Bam Adebayo is pretty good at that too. And you know, Nerlens Noel is wonderful, but is not particularly you know fleet of foot. And I don't really trust Randall either in guarding Bam out on the perimeter. 
between him and the shooters the Heat have and Jimmy Butler's ability to make something out of nothing. And like I said, Miami's defense, I think, I think the Heat are a better team than the Knicks are, um, even though they're the lower seed. They're one of those teams where like, I haven't watched a ton of their games outside of their matchups with the Knicks, and I don't understand why their record is so bad. I don't know if they just got hot against the Knicks or what, but they looked to me in the several meetings they've had with New York like a much better team. Atlanta has another thing, has another attribute that the Knicks have trouble with, which is a really good pick and roll creator. I think second to the James Harden, you know, whoever pairing, sometimes it was DeAndre Jordan, sometimes it was, um, you know, Jeff Green, whoever. James Harden has just eviscerated the Knicks off the, just beating his man over a pick and making a simple shuffle pass to the roller has generated like 200 points against the Knicks with the most basic pick and roll passes this season. Second in that regard is Trey Young and Clint Capella. Trey Young, you know, obviously draws a ton of fouls, but also the Knicks pick and roll defense, the way it's designed, if you have perfect timing to hit the roll man, then you can find a seam in it. And you really need to be perfect. They have a good pick and roll defense, but because of the shooting threat, I think, you know, Trey and James Harden are best equipped to beat that. And so, um, you know, the reason the Knicks beat the Hawks during, I think it was during that big win streak, was really that Trey Young screwed up his ankle in the middle of that game and, and disappeared. Um, so the Hawks are going to be a tough matchup for the Knicks too, but I think not as much of a problem as the Heat would be. And I would give the Knicks a better chance of winning that series. I don't know what Mitchell Robinson's prognosis is, but especially if he were to come back by surprise. This will be the last question. We really appreciate all the time you spent with us talking about the Knicks today. As you know, this will be their first playoff appearance since 2013. For the always reasonable fan base and media in New York, should that be considered an achievement in and of itself? Or do you think people are expecting or hoping for at least one series win or some measure of playoff success there? You know, I'm not a good representation of how people should feel about things. I don't know. I don't care what other Knicks fans, some of whom are not particularly reasonable, uh, are or are not satisfied with. This season has already been incredible for me, partly because I was so down on the team going into it. Um, Them having an above 500 record and making the playoffs potentially as a, a top four seed is incredible. Seeing this individual turnaround is incredible. So, yeah, I mean, the things that would really create a bummer where there hasn't been one prior to this point, if someone gets badly hurt, which, again, I am really worried about, um, that would suck. That would really put a damper on what has otherwise been just a dream of a season. And I would say, you know, if the Knicks really got crushed in the first round of a playoff series, if they got swept and it wasn't even close, that would be a bummer. I don't think it would make the season a failure at all. I think they've already succeeded. Um, that would suck. Anything above that line, I reserve the right to change this answer once I get into playoff basketball and am emotionally invested. But I just feel like they've done their job. They've made me happy. You know, it's like I said, pretty straightforward to see what the team needs to do going forward. Not that they're necessarily going to do it, but. I think the plan is pretty clear to all of us. This has been a success. I feel good. And they can do almost anything in the playoffs and not really knock me off my stride. But like I said, 
it's been a while since I've watched playoff basketball. I don't even remember what it feels like. Uh, I'm scared. <laughs> and we will see. Plenty of things can go wrong. And maybe four weeks from now, I'll talk to you guys and be like, no, this is a disaster. I hate everything. This is another failure. Burn down the team. I, I have no idea. Let's just hope for the best. Let's hope at least the worst case scenario that you described doesn't happen. And yeah. it's been a real pleasure talking to you, Seth, today. Learned a lot about the Knicks. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for having me. Let's let's not let it be uh, five years in the whole presidential administration before we talk again. <laughs> <laughs>